Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. The title of Kirsten Greenwich's new play, Our Daughters Like Pillars, is based on a Bible verse. Then our sons in their youth will be like well-nurtured plants, and our daughter will be like pillars carved to adorn a palace. Daughters are at the heart of the play, which explores also an up-close look at the relationship between sisters and how those relationships have been impacted by COVID-19-imposed isolation. Kirsten Greenwich is a Boston-based playwright who is the author of several works set in and around Greater Boston and New England, including The Luck of the Irish and Milk Like Sugar. She's an associate professor of playwriting and theater arts at Boston University's College of Fine Arts. Greenwich was a Huntington Playwriting Fellow from 2007 through 2009 and a playwright-in-residence at Company One Theater. Her work has earned significant recognition, including a Lucille Lortel nomination, two independent reviewers of New England Awards, and an Obie from The Village Voice. And Kirsten Greenwich joins me now. Welcome to Under the Radar, Kirsten. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. I want to start with the title and the Bible verse. I assume the Bible verse came first and that inspired you to write the play? Um, it, it actually came a little bit later in the process. The original title was called And Moira Spins. And Moira is another word for fate. Hmm. And so I got really interested in, in how the relationships in the family whether or not they predetermine how you turn out later in life. That was one of the threads that I was interested in. And um, the problem with that title was that there's nobody in the play named Moira. So it was a little confusing <laughs> and not many people understand what that means. And so with the Huntington's help, I began to search around for new titles and really wanted it rooted in the idea of daughters and what daughters roles are supposed to be in a family or a group of people. Well, tell us briefly what the play is about, but no spoilers. I try very hard to sort of keep something for the play attending people. (laughs) It is about a family of sisters, the oldest sister being Lavinia, and Lavinia invites everybody uh, to a vacation home, not, not one they own, they're renting for the week in New Hampshire to come together. And it's about her sister's reaction to that week. And there is also a brother in the play. And um, uh, I was very interested in putting multi-generational family in this particular setting. So there's older generation, older than Lavinia as well. And what is interesting is that, uh, as we've said, it's set against the backdrop of an evolving COVID crisis. As I've read in your mind, this is the summer after the vaccine rollout. We have to say evolving because, hey, it's still evolving. But if, if people can go back, you know, to right after the vaccine rollout, we thought it was over, you know, and thankfully we were running toward connecting with friends and family. I know I did. So it's a great moment to have a family vacation as you've set the play. But I wanted to talk to you about the decision to incorporate the COVID experience. Did that help you actually heighten the family tension or did you just feel you had to do it just to make it be more real for people? 
I felt as though I, I recognized that when I began going to theater again in September-ish, that I often wondered where the, the pieces I was seeing, I wasn't seeing tons of theater, but where the pieces I was seeing, where they sat in relation to this huge global event that we are all experiencing. And I know as a writer and as an audience member, this is just as deficit in myself. I had a trouble um, connecting to pieces that didn't mention the pandemic at all if they were set supposed to be set in present day. I was like, where are people's masks? I feel unsafe. And it's totally me. That's just totally my projection. But I, I felt like I need to weave it into the piece knowing it would be presented in spring of 2022. And that's something that my dramaturg, Charles Hogland at the Huntington have been talking about a lot is that you know in, in a few years, Will the piece need that those strands? Will it be familiar with people about this very specific sliver of time in June, July, 2021, where we did think it was over and we began to gather. And I also wanted it then so that we could have it during the pandemic, but that the characters in the, in the piece felt free to connect with each other and meet each other in person, knowing that many people in the Northeast in particular, a few weeks after that, people began to get wary again. And a little bit before that, people weren't seeing each other at all. So that's why it's in that specific space. Well, for me, I think that's going to hold up no matter what, because it's, it sets you in a place and time, which I think is important to remember. So that's just my take on it. You know, I'll be looking as we go forward for other pieces of art that figure out a way to incorporate that into the reality of the situation, because that's what it was. And ignoring it seems to me, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like it's something you would do. But anyway, that's just me. And I don't write plays. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it also it, it became a, a question of um, when I first started writing this play and explained what it was about, about Lavinia trying to gather everybody and keep them there at this vacation home. People didn't necessarily connect to that part of this, the story about, well, why would anyone want to live all together like that? So post or post that moment in, our, in the pandemic, what I've noticed is a lot more people saying, oh, this seems to resonate a lot differently with me than I did when I read this piece pre-pandemic. So that's another reason why I thought incorporating more of the everyday intricacies of living in the pandemic was important to me for this piece. Well, now that you brought it up, you're very familiar with family living together, you know, <laughs> uh, because you live with your sisters and you you all quarantined together and, and your mom. Did you, and now this is not a cinema verite kind of situation, but what did you draw from your regular experience, because it's something you'd been doing already, to add to this play in shaping the tone of the living together situation? My children like to say that living in this house, they, they like it, then now it's become our normal, but that it is very busy. There's something going on all the time. So one of the wonderful, beautiful parts of the play that Kimberly Sr. has orchestrated is seeing how people just move through this house on set because there's it's almost it's constant movement. There's there's constant somebody's constantly moving. It's not really loud, but there's something doing, so to speak, everywhere. And I think my kids say this is this house, our house is never usually quiet, maybe around two or three a.m., but that's it. And so making sure that I got that feeling of living in a house full of people was important to me. And I think influenced by my experience now in my intentional co-op living with my family. My mother lives here as well. Mm. 
So now let's just talk about how this play is, it seems to me, just uh, represents so much that's usually characteristic of your plays, of what I've come to recognize as characteristic, which is a focus on family and those relationships therein. And that can impact two ways, because sometimes it can be blood family and other times it can be chosen family. But nevertheless, there are those kinds of familiar bonds that uh, you really return to in your work. And I am just taken by that because that's rich territory. You can go in so many directions and obviously you can never run out of stories <laughs> because because right. of that. In this instance, you know, sisters, as I said, daughters at the, at the heart of this. I note that uh, your sister told the New York Times, my sisters and I have always been extremely close and we are each other's greatest fans, but we have always been our own people. Was that what you were trying to portray in Our Daughters Like Pillars? Yeah, I definitely think that the three sisters who we meet in this piece love each other fiercely and also are really, really working out how to be their own people as adults, like adult, there's that adult sibling dynamic and your siblings, whether or not they're blood siblings or people you've grown up with, they see you, all of you, they see the, the you you were at two years old and they see the you you are at 47 years old. And that can be wonderful and beautiful. And it can also be quite complicated because it, how do you how do you break free from conversations you may have had 25 years ago that a sibling says, hey, I never finished that conversation when you stole my candy cane Christmas, you know, <laughs> 1982. And the other sibling is like, we don't know what you're talking about. We never had candy canes in our house at all. So I'm really interested in that idea of um, truth and how one lives their truth in a family. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm joined by playwright Kirsten Greenwich. We're talking about her latest work, Our Daughters Like Pillars, now at the Huntington Theater Company. Uh, another signature, issues of race and gender are always a part of the mix reflecting, you know, somewhat of your own experiences. Now, there are rarely speeches about it. People aren't like on the stage going over to give me a lecture. But it's the integration of the experiences as part of the character's reality that really is striking. And that coupled with the setting of uh, New England really helps, I think, your work stand out. I want to take a listen to actress Nicole Salter, who plays Lavinia Shaw Williams in Our Daughters Like Pillars, who's talking about that. I am such a fan of Kristen Gage's writing. I appreciate her work and her voice because I don't really hear many people writing about African Americana in New England. And my entire family is from Providence. And so it touches my heart particularly (laughs) to know that um, there is space on the American stage for a family like mine. So is that intentional? It just just flows from you because, you know, that's where you're coming from. So you can imbue that in your characters. It does. It does come naturally in terms of my being from this area and wanting to see stories about people of color from this area, because there seems to be sometimes the misnomer myth that black people don't live here and haven't lived here for a very long time. Um, So that is important to me and and is part of my mission in terms of the, the types of characters I choose to place on stage. This play was really important for me to try to place lots of Black women on stage and Black women who would not be playing the ingenue, um, the 20, 21-year-old who we sometimes see a lot more. We don't, we need to see a lot more of us on stage, but sometimes that is, those are the, 
that's the age group that we're seeing. And, and that's sometimes that is because uh, life in the theater, playwriting is often, it doesn't always feel like it if you're up and coming and you're emerging. So if you're listening and that is you, I understand. Uh, but it is a young person's game. The hours are strange and crazy. There are long days. I find it very rewarding. But if you keep getting rejections or have trouble getting your work done, it can it can be a very inhospitable place. So when you oftentimes when you hit you know 35, 40, sometimes people move on or move or move to TV, hmm. and uh, and that is why sometimes we're seeing the age the ages of actors that we are on stages. So it's really important to me since I am no longer in my 20s or in my 30s to place women on stage who are older than that and have a different life experience than someone going through life in their early 20s. And so that was really important to me for, for this particular play and choosing this particular set of characters. Another signature, I'm calling this out. You're not saying it, so I'm saying these are your signatures. You have not said they are, but I, I'm, I'm recognizing them as that um, humor. Uh, and I find that fascinating because, and, and I should say, listeners, I'm not talking about kind of like that. <laughs> it's really like you're like laughing out loud. Well, you know, there's a range, but you're laughing out loud at some of these lines. And I recognize that part of the power of that is very character driven, that the humor arises from something that the character says that is so in line with the character reacting to other people and the situation. But Kirsten, everybody cannot write humor. Is this something that just comes naturally to you? How do you, do you have to work at embedding it? Or just, again, is this a natural flow? There's all these types of humor. So there's the line that I would be thinking of when I write in my room, which is like this, uh, a reaction, a, a pure reaction, so to speak, that ends up being funny. And then there are also ways to craft the joke, either um, verbally on stage in terms of how the dialogue is hitting each other, so to speak. And then also visually, which Kimberly Sr. does wonderfully. And also I have to say, so hearing Nicole, Nicole's voice, I am a huge Nicole Salter fan. <laughs> um, and Nicole was also in Luck of the Irish. So audiences, if they saw that play, might recognize her from that. Nicole does not think of herself as a funny person, but she, she is, is. Very, she's really funny. Yeah. Um, so it, it also, it's, it's, it's just to have this realized on stage, it is an alchemy of, of writing and then um, a, a director or a set of creatives molding that. And then of course the, the actors in place. So I think that it, I'm not the first person to say this at all, but laughter can sometimes come from those of us who have experienced like deep pain or experienced watching from the sidelines. So the mm. writers, you know, observe, observant people. Mm. That's mm. why comics do what they do so well. And a lot of times comedy is rooted in, in great pain. And so when I think sometimes about my experience as a black woman, there are so there are many experiences I've had that have fed into a great pain. And sometimes you can get mad and you can activate, but sometimes I found that is where a lot of my humor comes from, which does not mean I am ashamed or upset about being a Black woman. I just take that as part of being the experience. Some of this stuff you have to laugh at or else you will get beaten down by it. Mm -hmm. So in my family, my co co habitating family out here in, in central mass there is a lot of laughter you know we are we are a family of color living in a space where there aren't a lot of people of color and sometimes that creates a lot of comical situations um 
we also deal with the, the pain and hurt of that as well. But I think that's sometimes where it comes from. My family is beautiful, wonderful, complicated, but I do come from a divorced family while my parents separated when I was 15. And so some of this play that those, those moments are come directly from that time in my life when I was an oldest girl, not as dire as this family necessarily, but that's where that comes from that, that, that laughter, that humor. Okay. So now I have another question, but I have to set it up this way. This is your third play set in and around greater Boston and new England and you said why that's important to you. I first want to hear a clip from a couple of the other plays, and then on the other side, I'll ask the question. So here's a clip from the trailer of Kirsten Greenwich's compelling Boston story, The Luck of the Irish, which premiered in 2012. Good fences make good neighbors. Good fences make good families. Well, that's what we want, to raise our family. Of course. We put up the cash for the Patella place. Title's in your name initially. Initially, yes. Yes. So that was The Luck of the Irish, a clip from there. And then here's actress Adrienne Seymour, who is best known for playing Black Cindy in the Netflix series Orange is the New Black, in Kirsten Greenwich's New York premiere of Milk Like Sugar back in 2011. Better make sure the daddy's cute, right? Because it's like the inside of a Twinkie. Sometimes, just what you expect, other times, not enough frosting. Right? You know, ain't nothing worse than twinky without frosting, and ain't nothing sadder than a ugly baby. Again, that was Milk Like Sugar, which also ran here for a bit of time in Boston. So here's the question, Kirsten Greenwich. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, looking at these pieces and now with the addition of Our Daughters Like Pillars, that you're doing an August Wilson thing. You know, August Wilson set his plays in Pittsburgh and in doing so told this multi-layered, larger story uh, about the town, but also what was happening to the people. Most of his characters were African-American, but it gave him a, a space to sort of stretch out in many directions. And I know no playwright wants to be compared to another, but it, it just feels to me like you're doing a similar kind of thing here. Are you? Well, if you know, to be compared to August Wilson, I don't think any playwright would would be upset about that. So I'm not not mad at that. That is a huge compliment. As August Wilson is one of the reasons why I wanted to become a playwright. Uh, I wish I was that intentional about. It. I am intentional about it in knowing that I want to tell Boston stories. I write stories um, about people of color, about Black people, and specifically Black women. And years ago. I read a an essay by Susan Lurie Parks. It's in the introduction to her America plays. And she, to summarize, she says, anytime you put a group of black people uh, on stage, it is a political act. Hmm. And so I've thought about that often, about the mission behind my work. So definitely there is a desire to put a specific set of people on stage and whether or not they're talking about their identity um, I believe that that is a political act, and that is really important to me. I don't necessarily know if I have a like a 
set of cycle plays, but definitely my, my mission is to, is to put these New England people onto American stages in a way that is complicated, dignified, and hopefully entertaining to be there, as, to, to be sitting in the audience and watch these pieces as well. Hmm. Well, something else you share with August Wilson, he was writing plays a long, long time before anybody paying attention to him. And you've been writing them since you were young. And then you made all your sisters play parts. (laughs) (laughs) But you come from a family of storytellers. How has that shaped how you do your work? Well, one of the luxuries of living all together and living with these wonderful, amazing women who happen to be my sisters is that often when we're together, it is like a colloquium. So we are able to trade stories. We don't, we, people often ask, oh, do you read each other's work? Like, oh, you must be, must know what Caitlin's working on right now. Or no, we don't, we do not do that. But we talk about what we're doing a lot of the time. And that has been very influential in terms of my work and what stories I choose. I often write about history. So I often will hit up Carrie, you know, Carrie's used to my texts and they're usually rather <laughs> I, I text her when it's when it's like a dire situation when I'm mid scene. I'm like, it's 1835 in the scene. Can this happen? Where what, what can happen? So living with these two people who tell stories does influence how I tell my stories and the material that I'm gathering for my stories. And also, we're also able to share the trials and tribulations of working in adjacent fields in terms of storytelling because we have some of the same experiences. So that has been really helpful. So those times when, and I think I've said this before, so I don't mean to be negative in the same interview, but like times when, yeah, you aren't, you aren't getting produced or you get that fifth rejection in a week or someone says something about your work and you're like, you know what, this just does not sit well with me. Who do I have to talk about it with? I'm very fortunate that those people live in my house. Um, and unless they are busy, we talk, we talk about it. Like my, my, uh, there is a lot of talking going on in my house, which my two kids are hyper aware of as well. That means they're going to have great vocabularies for one thing. <laughs> um, what do you want people to take away from our daughters like pillars? Uh, I'll, I'll go back to something that Nicole said just a few days ago. She said that the goal often is to have audience members come out of a piece talking about themselves and how they are feeling. I want the conversation to shift. Well, what was my family like going, growing up? Uh, what's my relationship to my, to my parent, my mother, father? So if people leave having laughed and, um, and enjoyed themselves, but also asking questions, being prompted to ask questions about themselves, I think that is a successful experience of this play. All right. Now, you, as it turns out, because this play was postponed because of COVID, have another one coming on the heels of this, like a few weeks after this one closes. My goodness, how are you cranking this out? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, it comes from a lot of help from various teams at the Huntington, my directors, Kimberly and um, Amelia, respectively. So plays, it can seem like a play is written by one person. My experience of playwriting and working in the American theater is that plays are wrought. So that's why the word 
playwright is spelt that way. They're not written. They're wrought. You go into rehearsal, you shape, you mold, you tear down, you build back up. So Our Daughters Like Pillars opens next week. We're still in rehearsals until that opening night. We are shaping and crafting and being able to work that way has helped me with in these processes so that you, you don't have to go into the into the rehearsal room having it all figured out. In fact, that's it's probably no fun for anybody. You go into the rehearsal room with a template and then you get to play with a bunch of other people and actors, directors, dramaturgs. But then also, if you're lucky, you get to play with um, all the tech side. So like this week is all of shaping with tech. What is What are the lights doing here? It's the play is underscored by our sound designer. Which, and it's beautiful, but that takes a lot of work. So this is the this this particular time is the fun time. So even though I am exhausted and I think I'm running on, my, my smartwatch says I've been getting about four hours of sleep at night and that's no good, but... Um, what feels amazing is to be able to work on these plays with these people, especially after this long. Both of these plays were set to go up, then got developed further during the last two years. And so it's really been a lot of Zoom meetings and a lot of Zoom workshops. And I'm really excited just to be in person with people. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Kirsten Greenwich is an award-winning Boston-based playwright whose latest work is Our Daughters Like Pillars. It's now in performance at the Huntington Theatre Company through May 8th. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. This is the last show for our beloved intern, Vanessa Handy, one of New York University's finest. Vanessa has been a wonderful addition to the UTR team with her contribution of outstanding work and great good humor. We wish her good luck in finishing up at NYU, and we can't wait to see where her formidable talents take her next. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back.